Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of GovInfoSecurity.com and Information Security Media Group, and I'm pleased to be chatting with Dr. Shari Lawrence-Flieger. She's Director of Research at I3P, the Institute for Information Infrastructure Protection at Dartmouth College. Welcome, Shari. Hi, I'm pleased to be here. In recent weeks, we've had the WikiLeaks breaches, as well as other things going on, that has attracted a lot of attention. What's uh, occurring in that area with the Institute? We, for several years, an insider threat project. All of our projects are multi-institution, multidisciplinary. This one involved seven members out of our 27-member institutions, and we looked at insider threat from a variety of perspectives, and in particular, we looked at behavioral sciences as well as computer sciences. It's relevant to the WikiLeaks problem in that somebody who obviously had access inside an organization managed to get documents outside the organization. We tend to look at things like this as unwelcome behavior and as the problem in general of how do you give people who work for you or to whom you've given legitimate access incentives to do only what you want them to do and not what you don't want them to do. We've come up with a taxonomy for thinking about the problem where there are four elements to the taxonomy. One is the organization itself, one is the individual, one is the information technology system that supports them, and the fourth is the environment. Why don't we go into each of those and tell us what the researchers are looking into or may have already discovered. Let's start with organization. The organization plays lots of roles in enabling an inappropriate insider action. First of all, it defines legitimate access, and it decides who gets access to what and in what way. Now, we often think of insider threat as some malicious employee, but that's not always the case. Sometimes it's people making mistakes. Sometimes they don't realize that they're countervening the policy. And so the organization frames all of that in the way it provides access. And it's not always an employee. You can imagine, for example, a collection of competing organizations putting a proposal together and they give each other access to their systems in order to write the proposal. You're not talking about employees anymore. You're talking about other organizations in the same way you might give an auditor legitimate access. If you're a university, you often give your alumni access when you give them um, a free email account and so on. And so any kind of legitimate access, it could be a vendor, it could be a temporary employee, it could be a subcontractor. The organization plays a key role in deciding who gets that access and who cuts it off. Often looking at those issues of access can help organizations figure out where they are enabling insiders that perhaps they don't want to. Some organizations have a du jour policy where they state explicitly what they want the security policy to be. For example, they don't want you doing your personal shopping online at work. They don't want you doing your personal email at work. But the de facto policy may be just the opposite. In fact, many organizations look the other way if you're doing a little bit of personal work on their networks because you're still sitting in their offices at their desks and getting your work done most of the time. It's not always the case that the du jour policy is stronger than the de facto policy. And just examining the differences between the policies can help an organization know where to tighten things up. It seems to me, though, and correct me if I'm wrong, that people managing these organizations may not all be aware of the differences between the de jure and de facto policies, which could exasperate the situation. 
not only can it exasperate the situation, but there have been court cases that suggest that if you have an explicitly stated policy but you don't enforce it, then it's the de facto policy that the court interprets to be the real policy. If your policy states that people shouldn't use networks for personal email, but you let people do that, then if somebody violates the policy and you take some action against them, the courts have held that the company is actually liable because they haven't enforced their policy. How common is it that organizations have de jure and de facto policies? Well, I think all organizations have both de jure and de facto policies. It's rare to find an organization, except perhaps in situations where you're dealing with classified information or highly sensitive financial information. Often companies try to find a balance between making their employees comfortable and enforcing policies. When such a gap is recognized, should companies take the de facto and make it de jure? I think they need to look not only at what's best for their organization, but what's best for their employees. You don't want to change the culture so quickly that people in the company feel uncomfortable. We have some examples where companies refuse to tighten their security policies because they think the degree of comfort that the employees have is part of their culture. So, for example, we know one of one organization that gives administrator privileges to all of its users in the company. From a security perspective, that's really dangerous. But because this company has a lot of very talented engineers who like to play around with the software on their systems, the company is afraid that if they tighten their policy, the engineers will go somewhere else where they have more discretion over their corporate laptops. So there's always that balance between attracting the kinds of people that you want to work for you and doing what's best for security. And, and in general, that's an insider threat problem. If you ask security people what's best for security, it's not always what's best for business. And finding the balance between the two is difficult. The second part of taxonomy you mentioned were individuals. Tell us about that. We looked around to see if we could get a handle on what kinds of misbehavior happen in the workplace. The research that we found suggested that one-third to three-quarters of all employees engage in some sort of misbehavior in the workplace. So those numbers are pretty striking. I'm sorry, can you define what you mean by misbehavior? Well, it could mean fraud, it could be, mean vandalism, it could mean sabotage. It could also mean destruction of property in the sense of deleting files, but those things could be accidental or intentional. So one of the things that we, in our taxonomy, that we do is distinguish malicious behavior from benign behavior. Now, sometimes people do things because they just make a mistake. Sometimes they do them because we don't design our systems very well. We make it easier for people to make a mistake. Sometimes they don't understand the instructions or our training or education are not effective. Before we jump to the conclusion that they're doing it intentionally and maliciously, we need to look at exactly what people are trying to accomplish with the systems that we give them. Of that one-third to three-quarters, do we know how much of that is malicious versus maybe accidental or designed by the system? No, we haven't drilled down to look 
in more detail. There probably are studies, we just haven't gone out to look at them. We were just trying to find a context for what the insiders behaving badly look like more generally as employees behaving badly. For example, if somebody is discontent at your organization and you tighten up your IT systems to make it harder for them to misbehave on the IT systems, if they're disgruntled already, they may find other ways to harm your company without using IT systems. To us, the issue is a human behavior issue. How do you keep your employees happier? How do you understand what they're trying to do with your systems, not just how do you prevent them from doing a very particular action? There are a lot of examples where people are just trying to get their work done. They view the security as an impediment. They may go around the security simply because they're working against a deadline or they need access to something in order to do what you reward them to do. We rarely reward people only for security. We, we reward them for producing products, meeting deadlines, interacting with clients, and so on. Looking at that tension between how the security helps and how the security acts as a preventive to getting your work done is one way of addressing the role of the individual and the insider threat relative to the individual. How do you reward somebody for good security practices? It's a good question. It's not really clear, and it's something that we're looking at in our new project on leveraging human behavior to improve security. We're looking at how people think about their work. We're looking at things like their cognitive load, and we're trying to view security as a friend rather than a foe. How can we, in a sense, reconfigure security so people understand that it helps them get their job done as opposed to keeping them from getting their jobs done? The third area that you mentioned was the information technology system. What's the role of the system in the unwelcome action? Sometimes the system's not involved at all. For instance, you can have a misbehaving employee steal money out of the cash drawer that may have nothing to do with the IT systems. Or sometimes the system is the object or the target of the insider behavior. For instance, someone is trying to get back at an organization and it plants a virus in the organization's computers or it brings down the network. So there is the object of the misbehavior. But it can also be a facilitator of the misbehavior. I live in the District of Columbia. There was a few years ago a tax fraud case where someone who had been in charge of the IT systems had been using them to perpetuate what turned out to be the largest tax fraud in the history of the District of Columbia using those systems. Looking at the nature of how the system is used can help in understanding the best ways to fix the system so that it makes it harder for somebody to use it as a tool or to use it as a target. You may realize who to question, who to monitor. There are plenty of places that monitor behavior. In the case of the District of Columbia, because this particular woman had worked with the IT systems for so long, when they were designed a replacement system, they asked her opinion, not knowing that she was perpetrating this fraud. And as a result, the advice she gave them enabled her to know how to subvert the new system as well as the old system. And the final taxonomy was environment. There, you look at the legal environment, you look at what's considered ethical or not ethical. There are times, for example, when context may change, the legal environment may change, and something that was legal on a system in one place is no longer legal in another. The most obvious example is when things are developed in the U.S., 
with one set of privacy laws and you take that system and move it to the European Union where they have a very different set of privacy laws. The system hasn't changed at all. It's possible even the employees haven't changed at all and yet the environment changes and all of a sudden you have a privacy problem which is a security problem. There are other examples with things like Sarbanes-Oxley requiring certain kinds of audits. There are espionage and trade secret laws. There are all kinds of attitudes toward privacy and intellectual property that can vary across cultures. The environment can interact with some of the human behavior issues whereas in one culture Privacy is valued in another culture. Privacy is beside the point. And so you end up with insiders doing things in one culture because they think it's fine and in another culture they realize it's not fine. But we have to be careful when we develop systems to understand not only who the users will be but where they will be and in what kinds of environments the systems will be used. There's research going on that's being coordinated through the Institute uh, what are some of the practical things we may see from this research in the coming year or two? We've just started a privacy project, and one of the things that we're doing on that project is bringing in social scientists to look at the perceptions of privacy and how they vary across cultures. And that means not just national cultures, but it also means organizational cultures. So what we're hoping to see from this 18-month project, which begins in early 2011, will be some guidelines for what to think about when designing and using systems in terms of how your users might perceive those systems. Another thing that we're looking at on that project is how to notify users when context of use changes. We all have seen privacy policies. We want to use some new application and we get a notice of the privacy policy and it might be 20 pages of fine print. And even if we take the time to read those 20 pages, we often get notices later on saying the privacy policy has changed. The new privacy policy may also be a couple of dozen pages how can we notify people of changes in privacy and get their understanding of those changes without making them read all of that? And we all know most people don't read those privacy policies. So in the same way, we're trying to get a better understanding of how people like to read their information about initial security and changes in security so that we can keep their awareness level up without interrupting them too much from the work that they're really getting paid to do. Thank you, Shari, for taking some time to speak with us. You're quite welcome. I've been speaking with Shari Lawrence-Flieger. She's Director of Research at I3P, the Institute for Information Infrastructure Protection at Dartmouth College. I'm Eric Chabra of GovInfoSecurity.com and Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.